Hey, I'm Willie Miller. Hi, I'm Seth Coe. I'm Kevin Mackett. Hello, I'm Jonathan Mackett. Hi, it's Grant Hackett here. Hi, I'm Sharon Spring from the Wallaroo. I'm Azuma Nelson. I'm Gashini and you're listening to Not The Footage. Yes, you are indeed listening to another podcast of Not The Footy Show. Our apologies. It's been a little bit longer between shows, but I'm afraid I've been a little bit busy and then trying to track down guests has been hard. But we've got a great guest for you today. We're crossing over to India where we're catching up with a man who's been appointed the coach of Mohan Bagan Athletic Club, and that is Siddharth Pandey, who uh, I did commentary with previously in India. Anyway, I'm Ashley Morrison. And I'm John Lee. Nice to see you again, Ash. It is. I'd forgotten what you look like. No, I haven't really, but it's been a while. And again, <laughs> our apologies. It's into the back of your brain. <laughs> <laughs> so who's getting us started today? You can today. All right, look, John, I was reading something the other day, and I don't know about you, but I hadn't appreciated. Like, I thought in cricket that the MCC was still the sort of main rule makers yeah. of the sport. I didn't know that now the ICC has their own rules. And yes, they're based upon the MCC rules, but that there were, you know, the ICC now rules international cricket and that even there are rules that the England and Wales Cricket Board put out for their tournaments or first-class cricket in England. I'd always thought that everything still fell under the umbrella of the MCC laws. Um, yeah, well, I wasn't aware of that. I, I can imagine why the ICC would have moved to take over the laws of the game. I mean, for a long time, the ICC wasn't the instrument that it is today, is it? it so, in some ways, the, the laws were invested with the MCC because that's where they started from, essentially, and it, it was a, everybody agreed to it. But as the sport's grown globally, and now the ICC is essentially in charge of global cricket, it makes sense that they look after the rules. Yeah, so laws. Laws. <laughs> so it was, yeah, from 1787 was when the MCC laws, really, they ran the laws. And apparently they ceded in 1993 the administration and governance to the ICC. Okay. But apparently the playing regulations are layered on top of the laws, so just to make things more confusing. And someone was saying to me that they believe that cricket now is the only sport that has international-level mixture of rules and playing conditions written by two different bodies. I'm not sure that is the case, I think. Well, wouldn't it be that the, the ICC, which runs international cricket, would say, right, these are the laws under... Much like happens in hockey. That's what I mean, yeah. Much like this, so... Okay, these are the laws that all international games will be played under. Well, I would and also think the fact that you now bring in video referral in various sports, you have to have different rules at the, or laws at the elite level. The laws may be the basics, but the regulations or rules oh, yeah. attached to that. Well, now you're starting to work into more playing conditions yeah. rather than the laws of the way the game is played. But it was interesting because, again, when I started looking at this in a little bit more detail... So what they did was the idea was that they felt that they didn't incorporate, for example, in the laws of cricket, anything to do with limited overs cricket. So there's nothing... It's only test cricket. That's just normal game of cricket until... So they've never done that. So what they decided, apparently, was that the solution was to have the laws as the bedrock of the game, and then all limited overs conditions are then written into the playing regulations. So you've still got the laws which are the essence of Makes the game. Makes sense. 
Yeah, and I actually thought that does make a lot of sense. And it said, so now, you know, there's, that's why there are no, nothing in the laws about limited overs cricket, T20 cricket, field placing, they all yeah. become the regulations of that particular tournament. Yeah. But the laws remain exactly the so same. So an LBW is an LBW regardless exactly, of what Exactly, whatever level, type of game yeah. you're playing. Um, which I thought it was actually really interesting, and it, especially when you look at even local cricket competitions here in Australia, back in England, where a lot of them have limited overs competitions, but they play under the regulations of the international rules, if you think about it. A lot of them have the field limitations, but they're still being judged by the laws. So even though we've never, you and I hadn't realised that the ICC had taken over the, the rules of the game because the laws are still there. It's yeah. interesting that club cricket has adopted those international regulations or rules without really probably realising it. It's just been a given, even though there's nothing towards limited overs written in the laws. If you understand that, you're doing really well. Yeah, I get it though. Well, it's all cricket. Doesn't matter what. Yeah. So, and it, it's almost like ceding to um, local authorities run the game in the best structure that suits what your circumstances are. And based according to the laws. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, look, I think it makes a lot of sense. But it but it was just interesting because I was not aware that I always thought that the MCC laws of cricket were still the Bible, as it was. Well, when I was growing up, we had eight ball overs in Australia. I remember when I was a kid, I was fascinated by yeah, that. Yeah. You know, living in England, it was like, whoa. Yeah. So well, whatever the historical reasons are for us having eight ball overs, we'd, so there were still those regional differences. Yeah. Uh, you know, one nation goes, well, we're playing this game, but this is a playing condition. Eight ball overs wouldn't be a law, it would be a playing condition. Yeah, but I must admit, I, uh, in England, I was like, as a bowler, I was like, oh, I wouldn't mind an eight ball over. <laughs> it gives me a bit more, <laughs> bit more to be involved, you know. I was quite keen on the idea. But then, of course, now, of course, you've got the hundred, you know? Oh, uh, well, yeah. yeah. And that's a very divisive topic, but, but we're not LB- going to LBW is still LBW. Uh, courts are still court. Bold still bold. Run out still run out. Stumped is stumped. You still have to hit the ball over the rope to get six runs. <laughs> well, the rope's come in a long way. <laughs> that's the playing condition, not a law. <laughs> exactly. But, I mean, the, the LBW one is very interesting as well because I was reading up about this and it was saying how... If you look at, again, the history of that, it was basically the laws changed to stop negative cricket. So, you know, it was, you used to be able, it had to be hit line to line, and then people were just sticking their pad outside off stump and just padding the ball away. So that's when they then said, well, hang on a sec. Now, if it pitches outside off stump and it turns and it's going to hit the stumps in line, then you can still be out. But it was to try and kill that negativity within the game. And again, if you look, the same has probably been said with, you know, wides and people bowling down the, the leg side. It was a yeah. negative tactic. And I think, therefore, the lawmakers in cricket must be commended because when they've made changes to the laws, it's always been done to try and make the game more positive rather than and to kill that negative aspect. So with it. The- what do you think about the changes to the short pitch delivery laws over the years? Because when we grew up watching cricket and first started playing cricket, a fast bowler could ping as many as he liked at your head. Yep. It didn't, and and that was okay by the rules. Well, that to me, but that's it's changed a lot in the favour of the batsman. You would argue. Yeah. Um, too much. You think so? Yes. 
I mean, the, the thing I don't like about John is, so we're going in a whole other space. Yeah, so yeah. my view of this is, since helmets came in, yeah. and let's forget when, not forget when we were growing up, there were no helmets, uh. and certainly amongst the first-class cricketers, there were none. Those sort of came in late 70s, early 80s. Tony Gregg at the WAC, at, uh, it wasn't the Wacker Ground, it was at um, Richmond Raceway. The crash Here helmet. Here in Perth, the crash helmet, yeah. And, then, I mean, there was Mike Brewley had that sort of skull cap. Son of Gavaskar yeah. had the same. And um, and I think what happened there, and this is, to me, one of the biggest things, is you didn't see players hit on the head that often in those days. Because, to me, without the helmet, there was they had to have their technique right. And you were taught to either duck or sway out of the way. But the key thing was to always watch the ball. Now, you look at the amount of players that get hit on the head today where they turn their head away from the ball. The one thing you were always taught never to do. And so I think helmets have created more danger because people then have been lazy with their technique and no longer keep their eye on the ball. So therefore, suddenly the short pitch ball, because they're not watching the ball and they're just turning their back on it, has become more dangerous. But I don't think that we should regulate for for against the bowling i would like to see us make the coaching better so that we go back to making players actually keep their eye on the ball because i think that would reduce the number of times people are hit would would a helmet have helped rick mccosker i'm not so sure oh, i'm not sure that with that one where he top it where he top he got, he got it, a yeah. top edge you know oh, i get the feeling it would have gone straight underneath his grill and yeah. still broken his jaw and look there were there've been plenty of incidents like that i mean there was the one who was it where the ball went into the helmet got lodged and yeah, fractured yeah. the player's cheekbone. I can't remember um, the name of the player. But, look... Well, had, the, I think part of the problem is people think, oh, I've got a helmet on, so I'm safe. Well, it's been proven even having a helmet on isn't necessarily safe. Yeah, I mean, it's the it same gives you a great, It gives you a greater sense of um, protection, I guess, but it, it's, it's not a be-all and end-all of personal safety. But, but, it, but it's the same sort of principle of, as cars with their safety so you know and this is a proven fact that the marketing of cars now is based around safety and they go you've got airbags you've got abs braking and all of this and they were saying that young drivers literally think when they get in there if i have a crash i will be okay because the airbags and the braking will save me and it's not the case if the car rolls you're still going to be in a lot of trouble or if a truck hits you you're going to be in a lot of trouble so or if you run into a tree at 120 kilometers. Exactly. So, so it's the same principle. Yes, it may protect you or give your chance of survival. I think what it does is it, it, that sort of safety is about um, lesser impact crashes. It's not the big horrible ones. The big horrible ones is going to cause mayhem. And but I it's think about minimising. Hosp- you know, instead of breaking your elbow or your, your collarbone in a small-scale crash and having to spend time off work and all the rest of the associated costs, that's not going to happen anymore. The airbag's going to stop you from breaking your collarbone. Yeah, and I think the same applies with the helmet. The helmet is there for maybe that one ball that you lose in the crowd or it just rises viciously off the pitch and you couldn't get out of the way and it catches you on the head. It cannot protect you necessarily, as you're talking about with the Rick McCosker, where you top-edge yourself you know, it, and it comes off an edge and flies into your face. I mean, he was going for the ball too. Oh, he was. He, he was making. He wasn't. He wasn't ducking or weaving out of the way of that one. Um, but in the modern era too, we've got to start talking about concussion. Yeah. And and that becomes an issue, and we're seeing it becoming an issue at a lot of sports. And I think there's a lot of sports that don't really understand 
what it means for them in the longer term particularly. But, you know, as much as we say, oh, you know, people did this better in our day and all that stuff about technique and, yeah, we did, the sport now has a duty of care and it's forced upon them because of the way litigation works these days, et cetera, et cetera. And you do have to be at least seen to be minimising the risks of those sort of things happening, at, at least minimising, trying to stop it from happening in your sport. And even if they did some conclusive, absolute study that said, yep, uh, players who don't wear helmets from a very young age develop the technique means they're less likely to get hit in the head than people who wear helmets. Even if they came up with all that stuff, they'd still make you probably make you wear a helmet. I think you have to now, which, I mean, I never liked wearing one, to be honest. I mean, and I, I remember one... We didn't grow up in them, though. Yeah. Kid, kids today are from the very, you know, it's almost the first bit of kit parents buy now, isn't it? The helmet and the yeah. bat. No, I remember one learning a lesson probably in my late teens. And, I, that, you know, as I say, helmets, I didn't wear them particularly often because I didn't like wearing them because I felt that it just impaired your vision slightly. Um, but I remember going into bat once and the ball whistling past my head and going, yeah, I think I need one today. And it, because I'd not worn one when I felt like that before and I got out quite quickly, you know, f- um, because I edged a ball that I probably shouldn't have played. But again, it was because I was unnerved by the one before. So I thought the next time I feel like that helmet goes on, if ever you think about putting a helmet, wear it. That was yeah. my modus operandi. Oh, good. You're here with us today. I am indeed. And I got hit in the head as well, so there you go. Well, regular listeners would know that, actually. <laughs> Hi, I'm Samir Dad, Olympian, hockey player. You're watching on me, not the footy show. Well, now it's time for our special guest. And as I mentioned, we're crossing over to India to catch up with a good friend of mine, Siddharth Pandey, who has been appointed the head coach of Mohan Bagan Athletic Club, who will be playing in the Baton Cup. And I'll let him share the story with you. Siddharth Pandey, welcome to Not The Footy Show. It's a pleasure to be here, Ash, as it always is speaking to you on uh, not just footy, but everything else in the world, yeah. Well, it's good to catch up with you. And uh, for our listeners, we've commentated together on the Hockey India League. And so I know a bit of your background when it comes to hockey. But maybe you can just share, you know, how you started and how far you went in the game. Sure. Uh, Ash, I come from a family of hockey players. Uh, My grandfather was a hockey player. My father, my uncle, uh, most of my relatives uh, played field hockey. Uh, It uh, sort of runs in the family. So it was only natural, like most players that take up field hockey globally, not just in India. Um, there was a big connection there. So me and my brother took up field hockey and football. Uh, that's soccer, uh, not Aussie. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I wish it was, but it, it's not. Uh, and uh, yeah, you know, a uh, uh, young boy with dreams, uh, like any boy has uh, to represent his country. Uh, at the highest level. Uh, unfortunately, I could not uh, make it to the highest level, but I represented India at the under-19 level. Uh, quite a few tournaments I played uh, for the under-19s, but uh, that step up to the senior age group was uh, a bridge too far for me. I don't want to make any excuses. And 
Yeah, you know, one fine day uh, after I left uh, playing. Uh, so in 2011, I won the national championship with Bombay, uh, with my state. And uh, I was expecting a call-up to the senior team, or at least for the trials after that. Um, since we were national champions, I thought, you know, the selectors would be uh, inclined towards having uh, a lot of players from the national championship winning team. But when that did not happen, uh, you know, my parents, like any good parents uh, in the world, uh, they took me aside and they said, listen, you're academically bright. Uh, would you want to try something else in life? You know, it's not it's not the end of the world. But it did feel like the end of the world for me uh, because that's all that I had been doing since I was six, um, you know, playing hockey and dreaming of playing for India. So stepping away from the sport was uh, not easy. But uh, it is what it is, and it uh, it had to be done. Had I not uh, stepped away from the sport, then it, things would... Uh, I don't know. I don't know where I would have been, but I'm happy where I am now. So, yeah, and that led uh, to other things in life, which I'm happy that have happened to me. Yeah, it's often the case. I know it's a cliche, one door closes, another one opens, but... You know, we we worked together, and the one thing I, that came abundantly clear to me is you never lost the passion for the game. And yeah. uh, when we were working on the Hockey India League, you were always saying you had an inkling to get into coaching, and you wanted to tap the brains of the overseas coaches that were there. And we had some pretty special conversations yeah. during the Hockey India League. And did that kind of inspire you more? Was it those conversations that really drove you to go? You know what? I do want to be a coach. Absolutely, uh, you know, Asha. By the way, those conversations that we had, I remember very fondly. Uh, and they are some of uh, my fondest memories in in my brief career as a broadcaster. Uh, because the Hockey India League was my first uh, assignment as a broadcaster. And uh, I'm thankful uh, that I had you as my co-commentator. It was absolutely wonderful. And, uh, and you're absolutely right. You know, I think Hockey India League was... Uh, one-of-a-kind tournament, unlike any other, uh, which had uh, Terry Walsh, Barry Dancer, Cedric D'Souza. It had a collection of uh, this most wonderful bunch of coaches globally who had made India their home uh, every year for three months. And, uh, you know, just seeing them coach, just being in that uh, atmosphere, and uh, just being around them, talking about them, talking with them, definitely fast-forwarded my ambition to being a coach. Uh, Cedric had a big role to play in that. Uh, you know, he, I sat down with him, spoke with him a lot. And uh, it's only then that I realized after I brainstormed with Cedric, uh, who's coached at the highest level, uh, who's coached players who played at the highest level. And he's won the Hockey India League as well. Uh, with uh, Delhi and it's when I spoke to him that I realized okay you know I I think I belong here and uh, let's just go full throttle at it. So how did you go about it I mean because I know now you've got obviously a lot of coaching qualifications and it's been yeah. not something that's happened in the last six months you've been working yeah. on this for three or four years now to get yeah. to where you are today I mean yeah absolutely it difficult yeah. to do it in India or has it been quite easy? No, I, w- I would actually like to thank uh, Hockey India and especially uh, a fellow Australian of yours, uh, David John. Um, while David John was the high performance director uh, at Hockey India, uh, for the first time in India, 
we had a coaching education pathway. Uh, there was a laid out plan, a laid out pathway as to how you can become a certified coach. And I think uh, I was the second batch only uh, of uh, coaches who enrolled for this pathway. And, uh, you know, 10 years ago, I would have been lost. I, I would not have had any any knowledge on how to go about being uh, not just a certified coach, but in my education uh, in uh, developing an overarching philosophy on what my coaching will be, how I will coach, how I would want my teams to play. But with the coaching education pathway, I think uh, it, it was very clear. I passed my Hockey India levels. After that, you go on to your FIH levels. And uh, and yeah, you know, I'm, I'm glad to say I've reached FIH level three now, uh, which is uh, a very good level. I'm happy with my progress. Unfortunately, COVID uh, sort of... Uh, was a bit of an obstacle. Uh, I should have reached uh, the level where I am now at least a year and a half ago. COVID came along with its own challenges and uh, and its own possibilities. You know, any challenge comes with possibilities as well. And um, started a few things of my own here in Mumbai, coaching wise. And uh, it was it's it's been a wonderful journey. Oh, well, that's really good. Now I know you've got something going on in Mumbai, but I just wanted to turn our attention. To, to another state and a really historic part of India in hockey yeah. terms, because uh, uh, Kolkata, I think, was the first um, hockey association in the whole of yeah. India. And now you've also been signed up to coach a club that had disappeared off the map for a little bit, uh, Mohan Bagan. I mean, how did that come across, about? You're, you're absolutely right, Ash. Uh, you know, few states in India have uh, the hockey history. Uh, that Bengal or more specifically West Bengal has. Uh, what happened in 1998-99 around that period was uh, Mohan Bagan, East Bengal and Mohammedan Sporting. Uh, they are the three big sports or athletic clubs uh, based out of Calcutta City. Uh, most of them are more than a century old. Uh, East Bengal will be celebrating its centenary year, I think in two years or something like that. Uh, Mohammedan Sporting after the partition of India now is uh, Dhaka Mohammedan Sporting and West Bengal Mohammedan Sporting. Uh, unfortunately, the club also got partitioned with the partition of India, but it has its own legacy. And uh, Mohan Bagan, wow, uh, where do I start with that? Uh, it has been given uh, the tag officially of being the national club of India uh, for uh, what it has achieved uh, as as not just a football club, but as, but as an athletic club. Uh, Baton Cup, which is, as you know, the oldest tournament, hockey tournament in India. Uh, Mohan Bagan has won it a record number of times. And uh, in 98-99, what happened was, and I don't know why it happened, uh, should not have happened. Uh, the Calcutta League, uh, which is uh, the be-all and end-all of all these clubs, uh, had still not moved to AstroTurf. Uh, which is shocking when you think about it and uh, you really wonder what's going on. And as a mark of protest, all these big three, uh, so as to speak, uh, as a mark of protest, they said, until you get the Calcutta League on turf, uh, we won't participate in the Calcutta League. And uh, the Hockey Federation said, okay, you go your way, we'll go our way. And uh, all the three clubs shut shop at that time. Uh, Fast forward to... Last year, 2021, uh, East Bengal sort of broke ranks 
and uh, they said you know we've been long enough uh, hockey's too important and uh, we cannot not have a team with the legacy that we have the history that we have and they fielded the team and they won the championship uh, you know so mohan bagan has uh, more than 10000 members club members and at the annual general meeting i believe uh, as most members active members in any organization uh, uh, they asked the responsible question you know east bengal has started its hockey team started back its hockey team and they won so uh, what's stopping us exactly uh, why don't we have a team why aren't we competing again and so the decision was taken that it's time uh, to get back into hockey and get back with a bang uh, so east bengal and mohan bagan uh, according to world soccer magazine uh, and many other magazines uh, you know it's 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 the 50 amongst the 50 biggest derbies in the world uh, in the world of sport it's 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 a real rivalry that is based on uh, ethnic differences uh, more than anything uh, you know it's not linguistic differences uh, derbies all over the world are based on religious differences linguistic differences regional differences uh, but here it's a, it's more uh, you know region based uh, because east bengal has uh, a support base that came over during partition from erstwhile east bengal which is today bangladesh and settled in west bengal and started their own sport and mohan bagan is of course uh, the club of those that are from west bengal itself so there is a a, a very very regional reason for that uh, very fierce rivalry and when east bengal started its team and won it was only a matter of time until mohan bagan would start its own team and that happened that happened this year and uh, i'm glad it has because it's it's a huge name it's a massive name uh, not just in football as i said there's a bit of pressure on you there there because uh, i mean i was looking at that they were really dominant in the bacon cup in the sort of 50s and 60s they won yeah. 12 titles in 22 years yeah. and runner up three times and as you touched on there i mean if you look at the region 27 olympic gold medals have come from there yet there's nobody now in the national setup that comes from that region is the talent still there i mean do you believe and it just now needs this impetus of the big clubs to come back to really see those players come to the fore you're absolutely right uh, ash uh, the talent is always there you know i i firmly believe uh, that it's the managing it's the nurturing of that talent uh, that makes all the difference uh, you know the belgian hockey setup is is the biggest example uh 2005 uh, they decided to go into a high performance setup and uh the challenge was that in 20 years belgium would win the world cup the european championship and the olympic games at least once all three of them before 2025 uh that's a 20 year time period uh, they took a bunch of boys uh and the, the talent was there they've managed them nurtured them and uh, yeah you know they have won the world cup they won the olympic games and they won the european championship more than once so they're ahead of the curve uh, you know so the talent is talent is there uh, what was not there was for that talent to feel inspired by uh, players who have who are heroes uh, you know that's uh, that's what makes the difference in the 50s and 60s as you touched upon the best players in india would play for mohan bagan uh, and east bengal uh, let's be fair uh, and that rivalry and that level of hockey would inspire 
any number of children to take up the sport. It's the kind of hockey that they would watch, uh, that they would be like, okay, that's the level that I want to play at. Uh, players such as Leslie Claudius, who, who uh, went on to play four Olympic uh, games for India, three gold medals, one silver, was, uh, was very much a Calcutta boy. Uh, you know, he's from Calcutta. He lived all his life there, passed away, unfortunately, a few years ago. These were the kind of players that uh, youngsters in, in West Bengal and Calcutta would watch. That has gone missing, unfortunately, in the last 20 years. And with East Bengal and Mohan Bagan now pouring resources back into their hockey teams and the kind of uh, players that we are just starting with, it's our first year. Uh, and uh, it's a World Cup year, so a lot of the national setup boys may not be available. But what we have was players who played for India until recently who signed up for Mohan Bagan. Uh, as you would remember, uh, Devinder Valmiki, uh, Afan Yusuf, uh, Vikas Dahiya, uh, the goalkeeper, Yuvraj Valmiki, uh, Jasjeet Singh Kular. Uh, you know, these are the players who were playing for India until recently. Uh, you've signed the all the yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we've signed all of them. Uh, and they actually put the cart before the horse, uh, Ash, you know, if I were to use that idiom. What happened was they first signed the players uh, and uh, and they asked them, OK, we signed you guys. We don't have a coach. Uh, who would you want as a coach? And um, and here I would uh, say Afan had a big role to play. He's, he's in a leadership uh, position there amongst the players. and. Uh, he and the others uh, actually told the club, listen, uh, there's this boy in Bombay uh, who's, uh, who we think is doing exciting stuff uh, coaching-wise. Uh, it would be great if uh, we would have him on board. And uh, that is where I think, I believe, my coaching qualifications played a role because I have not coached a team at the World Cup. I have not coached a team in the Olympic no. Games. Yeah, and, uh, and, you know... Uh, when I actually went to sign the contract as uh, as coach of Mohan Bagan, two other players also came in to sign the contract that day. And um, it was really funny because uh, the board members, uh, some of them were probably not aware of how I looked, who I was. And they were like, okay, which one's the coach? Uh, you know, so, uh, yeah, because I'm only 34. So it's it's exciting, you know. It's exciting. It's it's um, a lot of the coaches that I look up to in in my life globally also are uh, are in and around my age. For example, Julian Nagelsmann, uh, who's now coaching Bayern Munich, uh, he's exactly my age. Uh, and I remember uh, reading an interview of his first assignment at TSG Hoffenheim uh, in Bundesliga, and uh, and he walked into the dressing room on the first day for his first team meeting. And uh, uh, quite a few of his players were elder than he was because he started at 28, 29, um, you know. So how he managed that pressure of uh, coaching players who are in age and experience more than him it was very exciting. And uh, it's mean, the same feel, here. It's the same here. Do you feel that because obviously the players now have put you forward that, there is an added pressure because of that, you know, because that's quite a unique situation to be in where players have actually said, we want this guy. I, I enjoy it. I enjoy it, Ash, because uh, I, I want to coach at the highest level and uh, the pressure at the highest level will be far, far more than what I will experience here. 
so i'm um, actually i i welcome i welcome the pressure i think that's what i need uh you know just like being an exceptional athlete you know the i think the qualification is for you to have the ability to deliver under pressure uh, you know the biggest names in sport have that uncanny ability to really turn things around when the odds are against them uh, that's pressure and uh, it's no different as a coach you know if i want to cut it at the highest level i have to win uh, under immense pressure and expectation so i i actually welcome it this early in in my career i'm i'm enjoying it and uh, yeah bring it on well we certainly wish you all the best now we're running out of time rapidly but uh, just quickly i know you've set up a as and a sort of training um camp yeah. i suppose you'd call it or a school or, yeah. or or an academy in mumbai can you just tell us briefly a little bit about that and how that's come about sure ash uh, that's actually it's it's an elite training program uh, that's what we call it it is free for all uh, what we realized uh, me and uh, like minded uh, you know fellow professionals from mumbai uh, that uh, the pipeline has sort of dried up in mumbai of exceptional hockey players because a they're not getting the training that they should be getting it's not tough enough it's not good enough the quality is lacking and second they're just not playing enough competitive matches uh, so what we've started is an elite training program where the players get training that is now being doled out in the indian senior team the indian junior setup the australian team uh and so on and so forth and uh you know we are giving them this training and all facilities that come with it free of cost and uh, we see to it that they play at least 40 to 45 competitive games a year uh what we are already noticing is that uh, only with one off season training and uh with 20 odd competitive matches the level uh, has already gone up more than a few notches and um, they're an exciting bunch uh, of players to work with as uh, who come from unbelievably humble backgrounds uh, maybe people in uh, australia who will be watching this interview may not realize but i'll just give you an anecdote uh, you know one of my players uh, 3 months ago his performance dropped a significant drop in performance in work rate and output so i i just took him aside and i said uh, you know or oh, what's up why why has your work rate dropped is everything okay and he burst out into tears and he said to me uh, said uh, you won't believe but uh, the last 10 days i have eaten meals on alternate days uh, and uh, you know it's it was that it, these are the kind of players and conditions that we are dealing with so we've started them on a stipend as well uh, to help them financially and uh, we are looking out for sponsors uh, because everybody deserves a chance everybody in life deserves a chance a fair chance and um, with this le training program uh, and uh, helping them in their journey uh, we believe that we will give them a fair chance oh sid i wish you all the best with that that's the champions training center but also with mohan bagan it's been wonderful catching yeah. up with you and if anybody does want to donate they can contact us at not the footy show and we'll pass on your details but thanks again for your time yeah. and all the best moving forward thanks ash i hope to see you here in india you know very soon <laughs>
Pandey and he's doing great things in the coaching world in India as I mentioned there at the end he's got the Champions Training Centre which is for children under 21, under 18 that is a free sort of clinic or academy that they're trying to make players better and give them the opportunity to get ahead playing the sport of hockey in Mumbai and if you do wish to donate and try and uh, help put food on the table for some of these young players you can contact Not The Footy Show we will put you in touch with Siddharth and let you uh, deal with him directly there but what a story John you know the three clubs pulling out because there was no artificial turf and it's great that they're now coming back and uh, it'll be very interesting to see how they all go, whether they can recapture those glory moments from the past. It's sad that um, they felt they couldn't compete with that, without an artificial turf because you can play really good hockey on all sorts of surfaces. That's, that's a completely different argument. Can you imagine how strong Indian hockey would be if they could get their act together? And by act, I mean organise their sport Oh. It's, it's all over the shop, really. But, I mean, as, as you said, I mean, as in the interview there, I mean, how many Olympic medals they've had from that region. Uh, I'm trying to remember where I had the stats here. 27 Olympic medals coming from Bengal, and yet there's not a single player from that region now within the Indian squad. So if they get this right, it yeah. could be fantastic for Indian hockey. And, I mean, you talk about that. So there's a, there's a bit I found as well about the Bait and Cup. And they used to play on the Madans there, you know, the grass areas, a bit like a sort of oval here. And uh, this was from Dayan Chand, his book. He made his Bait and Cup debut there. And he said, in my opinion, it's perhaps the best organized hockey event in the country. Kolkata is indeed lucky that it has at least three or four first-class hockey grounds on the Madan. And this is a great advantage to run a tournament on schedule. And that was from his book. So, I mean, the grass was clearly, in its day, a fantastic venue. But as you say, it's sad that now it has to be well, turfed. I think for a lot of these places, it would be easier to run and maintain a grass field than it would be the, a, a, lot a turf. Hey, uh, well, yeah, a lot cheaper. Um, they'd have no problems with the labour costs. Well, not costs, but people finding the people to maintain it at a, at a decent level to be playing good quality hockey on it. And it, it, I think Indian hockey needs to re, reorganise itself from the top down. Like, how many states are there in India? I wouldn't know. 10, 15? Probably in that region. Every state should be running its own hockey programs like we do here in Australia. And Hockey India should be at the top of this pyramid and... You could run a national league where the, every state has a representative team in that national league, and all those players get drawn out of there, you know. And then you have club systems underneath that. But maybe it's a factor that it's such a sprawling country it makes it hard to get these organisational issues sorted out. But I'd like to see hockey go to like tennis, where if you've got an artificial pitch, you might have uh, polytan, you know, whatever. But then if you want to play on grass, you play on grass, as long as it's of a certain standard. And yeah, so yeah, exactly right. to me, I think that would make it so much more interesting. You imagine if suddenly you are playing, say, India's playing on grass in uh, Kolkata, 
and they want to play Australia. And I mean, Australia hasn't played on grass for so long. What a, it could really even the contest up, and why not? Have you ever heard a player at Wimbledon whinge about having to play on the grass there? Never. Now, there might be some who privately would prefer not to play on oh, grass. Oh, there are players that love clay, but, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think it, it adds an element to tennis that makes it unique. And I, and I think hockey should learn from that because even, I think hockey could really, this could really even the playing field. Even golf. I mean, all the golf courses in the world are different. Yep. You know what? To win that tournament, you might have the skills to win that tournament, but when you get to this ex- other tournament, even though it's still played on grass and using the same clubs and the same balls and all that, you will struggle because of the layout or the way that that, yep. to- that, that golf course plays. Absolutely. And I think it'd be great for the future of Indian hockey if maybe they did start looking at that. Because they've, they've anyway, it's a long, long story that we're not going to finish off today. No, um, your just, a, just a quick one, Ashley, because yep. I was having these thought conversations with myself. You know what it's like driving around in the early hours of the morning all alone? Oh, yep. <laughs> Listening to old-time hits on the radio. <laughs> um, I used to listen to Telegraph Road yeah. by Dire Straits. Straits yes. well, at night when I was doing, yeah. yeah. But it's just a great song when you're driving at night on your own. Yes. Uh, I'm subject at the moment to the whims of whatever pre-recorded <laughs> DJ music is coming up. Um, okay, driving around having a think to myself. Now, sport used to be competitions, didn't it? it used to be caught with competition or leagues and stuff. Have you noticed that sports now called a product? Like T20, the BBL is now a product. They, the, the, the people who run it describe it. As a, this is our, pro, we've got three products, we've got blah, blah, blah. And we've often talked to this idea that the sport business nexus, oh, we're in the entertainment industry. Or you even hear players say that. Oh, we're in the entertainment industry. We're entertainers and all the rest of it and stuff. So let's, let's look at entertainment as a product, right? Rocky One. Fantastic. First blood. Well, it's just Rocky, wasn't it? Not Rocky One, so let me get Rambo. Yep. I got the, I got my Stallone R, R words mixed up. A bit like <laughs> Stallone oh, yeah. sometimes gets words mixed up. R- Rambo, First Blood, the first one. Great film. You look at it now and you think, wow, there's some really interesting themes in that and it's really well done. What happens to Rocky 2? What do you mean it's Rambo 2? Okay. Rambo 2. Yeah. Uh, it's not Rocky yeah. 1. It's okay. And then we go down the list of Rambo movies until finally we get to Rock, Rambo 23 and it's just turgid crap. Bit like Police Academy. Yeah, Police <laughs> yeah. Academy. First one, oh, this is pretty funny. But you remember by five and six, you're just going, oh, get this rubbish off. You wish Steve Goodberg had stayed a dentist. When, 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 you, when you treat us like you treat entertainment audiences and you put up these things as, as entertainment and products, they've all got lifespans. Okay? Big Bash is trailing off now because we're getting to the Rambo 6 and 7 of Big Bash. Yep. It, it, it's it's a product that we've been sold and we all bought it and now it's gone. Yeah, and, and we're, we're tired not, of it now. You're a bit tired of that. Yeah, let's move on to something else. Yeah. And we keep get sport keeps trying to come up with these new products to sell us. Very good point. I hadn't actually thought about it, but yeah. you're absolutely right. It's it's a it, they're selling us a product. Oh, we'll go out and buy the latest three on three basketball trip. And then, oh, these are that fantastic. And the next season comes along, and oh, we've seen this. Oh, and they, at the end of the second season, they go, oh, they've seen that now. We have to 
try something else. We've got to rejig it with something. That's why they keep changing the, the damn rules. Yeah. Exactly. But at, intrinsically, as entertain, when, when you're packaging entertainment, it has a lifespan. Okay. Um, well, isn't every, Neighbours coming to an end? Well, it has. There it's you go. Well, so there's a proof of your, what you're saying. Well, whereas... They, they miss what sport was actually about. In those the contest. Moments. The contest. And the context of which it takes place in. Anyway, and, I, and I think was... the other thing that, that, that really hurts me, because, you know, I love the history of sport and I love yeah. looking back on previous competitions. And I think this is the thing is when you don't respect where that sport has come from and the players and the competitions that created where you are today, to me, you're in real, real trouble because if you forget that and you do away with that, I think you've made a massive, massive oh, mistake. Hockey did it. 90, 93 or 95 years of history. Just, oh, we're going to have hockey one now. And just cut all that off. Yeah, and I, I think that was a huge, huge mistake. You, you could still have had hockey one with your franchise system and all that sort of stuff going. You could have still had that and had the Australian Championship every year. Yep. You could have had both. And you, you have your tournament, maybe you run it over 10 days for the state teams. So you've got some bloke from your state who would be by state of origin your player, but he's playing for Hobart. For that state championship, he comes back. And then they can all that, That's the thing I didn't like is, you know, they were yeah. trying to say that this was going to be in place of the Australian Hockey League. Exactly. But then, but then you had players coming in from other states representing them, those franchises. And it's very interesting. I was reading... That, that's it. two products they could have had instead yeah. of the one. And one of those products with a long history and some gravitas behind it, yeah. which would be a different format than, than the... Uh, it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I was reading something the other day, and it was saying how we haven't got time to discuss it today, but it was talking about how the franchise model in sport is really in trouble, and it's beginning yeah. to die. And if you look at how Australia has adopted that with the A League, Hockey One, Big Bash, that's a real. There's going to be some tough times, I think, ahead because the franchise model, if you read what World Sport is saying has a very limited shelf life at the moment that people it's are walking... Because it's a product. Yeah, because people are walking away from it. Exactly what they, you're saying. They go saying. and buy it, they eat it, or they watch it, or they do whatever, and then it's done and... Oh, I've done that. But but saying that, John, just before we wrap up, because obviously we had the Australian Under-21 Championships here <laughs> in Perth, and I've just got to say... It's it, a good tournament, from what I hear. It, uh, the hockey was really good. Yeah. Um, there can be no doubt in that. There was one Some player... goals were... Yeah, there was, there was a player in the women's from the ACT. I was really surprised she didn't make the national squad because to me, and I was talking to one of the other coaches, they thought she was probably one of the best players at the tournament. So that was, I was a bit surprised by that. But what frustrates me again is here is a major tournament. This is a really big tournament because this is the tournament where some of those players will be the next generation of kookaburras and hockey yeah. roos. And so it's a crucial, really big moment in their careers. For some of them, they'll know that the dream is over at this tournament. Oh, for many of them, it'll be the highlight of their career. Absolutely. So yeah. give them their dues, give them the respect. And I, I just found it really disappointing that there was no program on any day, not even on the day of the final. There was nothing to tell you who was playing for whom or whatever. Now, surely, Hockey WA as the host nation could have come up with a program. They knew for about nine months out that they were having this, you know, you could have easily done it and 
put it together. And I just thought that was pretty poor form to have nothing because you turn up to a game and you had to go online to try and find out who everybody well, was. You could have you worked up a template months ago. Yeah. That only needed content to be filled. Um, the, the other thing that I found frustrating, no ball boys, even for the finals. Now, the argument apparently from Hockey WA was, oh, but the schools were all back. Well, ring the clubs, talk to the clubs. I mean, how many hockey players in the local league are teachers at schools? And you could have rung them up and said, is there any chance we can have some of your pupils come? And I'll bet you the schools would have said, absolutely, well, I, no I, problem. I know one school where the deputy principal would have gone, oh, yeah, I'll organise that. I'll even come down with the kiddies. Yeah. I'll, I can make that happen. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so I just think, again, there was that to me. Because I'll tell you the game, it was the semi-final uh, of the women's. And I think it was Victoria were 3-0 up. New South Wales came back to 3-2. And they were literally, you know, they're trying to get the ball, get on with play. There were 40 seconds wasted while a player had to go and fetch the ball. Clock didn't stop and it ran down. And then they had, you know, like 20 seconds to get from one end of the pitch to the other. But, you know, if they'd had a minute, very different. Yeah. And I mean, when you added up all that time that was wasted because the clock did not stop when they went, we were retrieving the ball. That was really bad. We know the PA is awful there. It was even worse. They tried some sort of speakers, and the guy sounded like something out of Doctor Who. Um, and then the other thing I would say is, if you're going to buy a scoreboard that's going to cost you half a million, when you have a delay, such as like there's lightning, and there's no announcing going on on the day, why not actually put up on the scoreboard when the game is going to restart, why the players are not out there playing. Now, I mean, everybody... Even just um, lightning, warning, play will... Something, but soon. we were all just sat there going, well, what's happening, and when is the next game going to start? Nothing. So I would give it a very, very poor mark, and I again, I find that is a lack of respect for the history of the tournament and the players, and it was just very sad, I think, to treat the players and their parents and the coaches in that way. Oh, it's nice that you're giving the last-minute rant this week. Yeah. Some people are on the bench. They think it's all over. We get See ya. We'll be back next week.